0: Hello everyone, I'm Frank Garza with Lean Startup Company, and it's my pleasure to welcome you to the webcast. Today's topic is how moving to a startup can be rocket fuel for your career, and moderating the discussion is our own Lean Startup Company faculty member, Elliot Souzel. Our guest is co founder and CTO of Textio, Jensen Harris, and with that, I'll hand things off to Elliot.
1: Hello and welcome to this week's webcast. Today we're going to be discussing startup transitions. How, when, and why you might decide to transition to working at a startup. Today we have with me co-founder and CTO of Textio, Jensen Harris. Jensen, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. This is going to be fun. It will. Uh, Our goal today is to level up our viewers' knowledge uh, by the end of this session, you'll have the information you need to help you transition to and excel within a startup context. Before we get started, I want to give you an overview of our agenda. First, we're going to start by hearing Jensen's story. Co founder stories are always interesting, and Textio's is no exception. From there, we'll move into Uh, A little bit of conversation around deciding if and when you might want to transition to a startup. And then we'll explore what to look for in a potential startup that you would want to work at. Interview tips, warning signs, and the works. Sound good? That sounds great. Let's do it. Awesome. So let's start with your background uh, and how you decided to uh, found Textio.
0: Yeah, that sounds great. So um, I have sort of, I guess you would say, the ideal background for uh, a tech startup CTO job, which is, of course, a music degree. Um, I was a... (laughs) Naturally, uh, a music degree. uh, A near high school dropout that left high school to go to uh, music school um, and studied music as well. Uh, Got a degree in music composition uh, in college. Uh, and so, of course, you know that's you know maybe help or uh, hope for everyone who ended up uh, studying something that is as uh, commercially useless as music composition. Um, but um, I've always been programming computers my whole life, and um, I actually had an opportunity to uh, intern at Microsoft in Seattle uh, when I was still you know pursuing music composition. And uh, found that I really loved uh, actually building software. Mm -hmm. And so I came to Seattle and uh, worked at Microsoft, where I worked there for 16 years, predominantly at the uh, intersection of the humanities and engineering, which for me was user experience. The idea of building something beautiful, uh, inspiring, that communicated in a uh, in an amazing way, what it was capable of, but then the engineering reality of actually making that happen. I found that I really loved that, um, and so I had an opportunity there to lead the teams that created uh, the user experience of Microsoft Outlook, the email client. Um, I then led uh, the team that uh, redid the user experience of Microsoft Office, so Word and Excel and PowerPoint, um, and uh, in the into the UI that still a decade later is pretty much how we, we built it then. Uh, and then create the first user experience for uh, the Surface uh, line of, of computers. So a uh, long career there, uh, but yeah. I knew that- I'll,
1: I'll interject and say yeah. we honestly could have like a full conversation just about that and it would be really, really interesting. There's uh, a lot- another day, Well, There's we'll a lot- Because right? so many people into. have used those products, right? Those are major products.
0: That's right. And one of the most interesting challenges that I really loved was how do you innovate in the sort of core, what you would call productivity aspects of working? Mm -hmm. Um, Like I really loved working on Word, for for instance, because you knew that the world's words were going to flow through it. And if you could give someone a way of, you give someone sharper, better, easier to use tools, then you've made their day better in a really tangible way which I loved.
1: Oh yeah, I mean, to make a, a metaphor here, right? Like you're, you're like designing the highway system by which people do work, and we all know that like a well, well-crafted, well-designed road, well-built road is so much better to travel on,
0: right? Yeah, that's right. That's a good way of thinking about it. And so, um, but also after 16 years at a big company like Microsoft, uh where I never thought I was gonna be staying that long. Like yeah. if you would have asked me when I started, I'd be there two years, three years, and then go on and, and do the next thing. And they always found exactly the right thing to keep me there. Mm. And all of a sudden in the blink of an eye, um you know, more than a decade had passed. And although I loved much of what I was doing and I had really smart people that I was working with, um I felt like it was time to, uh, to make a change, to do something really uh, where we could innovate a lot faster, where we could try something really new. Um, and so uh, I founded Textio with my co-founder, Kieran Snyder. Uh, she has worked at Microsoft and Amazon as well and has a PhD in computational linguistics. And so Textio, in a very real way, is a combination of, of our brains sort of my history in creating productivity software for the world and her uh, history of measuring language, which Mm -hmm. is something that she's done her entire career. And so uh, we had this conversation in the latter half of 2014 about our mutual dissatisfaction with the state of writing software in the world that we couldn't believe here we were 40 years into the post-typewriter era and still all of the software that we had to write did the same basic thing the typewriter did. It um, allowed you to enter things sort of word by word and sure it gave you great um, tools for formatting or decorating the text. Like now I can have beautiful tables or I can do page layout or um, you know Google Docs came along and gave you an opportunity to collaborate in real time on the web and those are are great but none of the software that existed for writing actually could tell you how well your words were going to work you were still totally in the dark about uh, whether the words that you were going to write were going to get the effect that you wanted them to have and so we thought we developed this notion of augmented writing what if you could build software that could give you the superpower of knowing how your words were gonna work before you ever use them. Like somewhere in me are words that if I say them are gonna make you super interested to keep listening to this. And somewhere in me are words that if I say them are going to cause you to tune out or turn this off. And it's very difficult for me to tell which are which. And so what Textio was founded to do was create augmented writing software, really the first category of software that uh, that lets you, as you're writing, know how your words are going to work. And we founded the company with just the two of us. Uh, and we've been at it now for about three and a half years. We're uh, about 100 people now. And, uh, and we've really you know, built this augmented writing software, what we, what we view as what's going to shine the way for the next decade of what it means to write on a computer in a fundamentally different way. It feels different, it looks different, um, and it is the biggest advance in writing uh, since the computer.
1: Ha. Ah, well, so this is so interesting um, because it, it makes sense that like, yes, our words have an impact, and what if you could know what what that impact might be ahead of our saying those words, and um, you know, it's it's one thing to over time pick up on some of these patterns yourself, but having something else that could say to you like, hey, this may or may not work as well as something else sounds really interesting. Now, obviously you don't sort of snap your fingers and this this magical product is built. Talk to me a little bit about what happened between that idea, that spark, and getting to the product you have today. Um, Something that's often talked about, and this is, almost a a dirty word it's so misused is the minimum viable product and i say this word very cautiously because uh what that might mean to me is probably something very different than to every viewer and to yourself um so talk to us a little bit about what happened between like hey we have this idea can it even be done and and where you are today
0: yeah so you're exactly right which is that nothing like this is born from overnight success, right? And uh, and I think you're right to, to think about uh, what does minimum viable product means? Because I think the important thing there is that it means something different for every product. Like the key thing is how can you build something quickly that you can measure whether it's gonna be successful or not? But figuring out how far you have to go is, uh, is, in a sense, the whole game there. Um, and so we had a couple of things that we had to get started from scratch. So the first thing is that Textio is built from data because it's a machine intelligence product at its its heart. And so you start with zero data. Well, that's kind of lonely when you're sitting in a two-person cubicle in WeWork trying to create the future of writing. You need it to be based on data, and you don't have any. Yes, that. So, so where do you data. start?
1: Yeah, interesting. so
0: um, yeah. So for us, uh, that first step was uh, not just finding data, because lots of people start that, that with like, this idea that they're going to get publicly available data. Like they're going to scrape data or they're going to you know, get it from mTurkers or something like that. The problem there is you don't end up with a moat. You don't end up with proprietary data that can differentiate your product. You end up with the same data anyone else in a cubicle in WeWork can scrape. And so what we did was um, we found a few potential customers and we said to them, we don't have a product yet, but in exchange for us uh, building the product with you and giving you an opportunity to, in in a sense, get some early consulting work for us where we were doing manually the work that eventually the engine would do, could we get your proprietary data and the rights to uh, build the product about that? And we found a first one and then two and then three customers that were willing to give us that data. And then we were bootstrapped. And that was enough that we could use to sell to our next customer. Amazing. And then that customer included their data and the engine kept getting smarter and smarter. And soon like the flywheel is turning mm-hmm. more customers, more data.
1: So in lean startup parlance, to me, um, this sounds a lot like a concierge style, minimum viable product where you are manually doing the things that eventually technology will do, which has some profound benefits. First of all, you're learning as you go, which is huge and important. And second of all, you're not automating a bunch of stuff that you might have to change anyways later because it's the wrong thing to be automating, the wrong thing to be building to to tech anywho. So I think that's really uh, interesting as a starting point. I love that it started with real customers, and and, uh, not a fictitious customer that will, will, of course, appear sometime later down the road, which, spoiler alert, for many companies never materializes.
0: Yeah, and I think the thing that maybe helped here was that we're defining a new category of software. No one had an existing augmented writing product that we were trying to you know take out like we weren't coming in and saying you know your existing augmented writing software well we can be slightly cheaper or slightly better the me too um,
1: play is is what that's called exactly
0: right? we were coming and saying there's a fundamentally better way of doing what you're doing uh, the place we chose to start applying text was uh on job listings so helping companies uh augment their job listings to get better responses and, um, and so we had a very tangible uh, uh, sort of value proposition for them. Like every company is trying to hire better people. Every company is trying to hire faster and, and more diverse uh, uh, base of people to form the sort of their company. And so for us, it was um, we were willing to offer some basic analysis in return for the data. And the important thing about then when we got the data was we used it to actually build a product. What we didn't go was for years and years of just using that data to do the concierge thing. Um, We didn't prove that out for a year. We took the data and we immediately started building the engine because we knew that was gonna be the thing that was gonna power the business. Um, The other thing that was really important for us is we built the user experience uh, very early. We knew that our product was not just gonna be the engine, but in fact we were building and creating and inventing a new way of writing that was gonna feel different. And so for us, Minimum Viable Product didn't mean that it had all the features that we have now at all, but it meant that there was some core piece of the user experience that we had to perfect and shine up even early in order to tell whether it was gonna work or not. So we didn't do the typical thing which is you wait until later and you only build the engine and you don't build the frame of the car. We sort of said we need to build a little bit of both of those deep enough to be able to measure whether the product is viable as a whole. Yes,
1: yes. I, and I want to key on to something you said there, which um, is around what the purpose of a, a minimum viable product is. What is the purpose of building anything at this stage? And I think it is to learn the next most important thing that you need to learn at that exact moment in time to determine whether or not the business is worth pursuing further does that resonate with with kind of what you were yeah saying?
0: It, it totally does and there were some places in which we were really right and there were some places <laughs> in which we weren't right and where we built things out early on that man i wish we could have those weeks and months back uh-huh, especially uh-huh. when you're small um you know you take a bet and you build something and um if you overbuild and this is a, a classic uh, mistake that people who come from a big company have when they move to a, a startup is you overbuild. And then you realize only later, gosh, we didn't need to do all of this to figure out whether it was going to work or not. Um, yeah. you know, we have features in the product that we built that we thought were important that I'm not sure anyone really uses. Um, and so that, you know, that is something you learn from and try to get better and better at the next time.
1: Yeah, I think that is such an important topic around how do we figure out what the right things are to build anyways? And what are the leading indicators that help us figure out that those are the right things? And as much as possible, the game is to commit the least amount of resources to learn the most you possibly can about whether or not you're headed in the right direction. Sometimes that means you need to write code and it's going to be thrown away. And in a more perfect world, you can use perhaps some of the lean startup style techniques to figure out like, aha, here are some leading indicators that would give us a pretty strong signal that this will be well, well received. But even then, often it doesn't work the way we think it would. That's
0: right. And I think there's, there's another piece, which is the reason that you do that is so that you give yourself the opportunity to really build in an awesome way, the things that are important. Mm -hmm. Like it's not just building the smallest possible version of everything. Like I think oftentimes uh, people choose to um, not build, for instance, a good user interface until later because they're just testing to see where the idea works. And what they find out is, oh, people don't like using this product. I guess it was a bad idea. Whereas we can all think of so many products that were limited in their early version, but had like some perfect idea or some perfect little interaction in it that drew you in and made you start loving it. And you were you were willing to say, it's okay, this doesn't have as many features because I really love using this. And then they're able to bring you in and then you build more and more on top of that. And so understanding the kind of product you have and and realizing that the viability itself might rest on how people feel when they use it. And actually building that um, holistic uh, and emotional experience into the product sometimes takes a little bit of extra polish on the front end, and the place where you can you know, wait a little bit is sometimes on the back end. So understanding that, I think, is the key.
1: Yeah. Well, you speak to an important point around the balance of not over-optimizing an interface that turns out nobody wanted or needed and this doesn't solve a real problem. and solving a problem in an elegant way right and if your product exists to solve some specific problem like yeah don't just put like some really lame piece of functionality out there that does not solve it in a satisfying way at all but sort of solves it i mean you could right um but i think w- what you're getting at reminds me of a chart i've seen of of you know how to build a minimum viable product and there's a pyramid and at the bottom of it the bottom layer is functionality only. And people think MVP means like a crappy version of a whole bunch of functionality. And then a better view is a slice across all the layers of the pyramid. And I forget what all of these layers were, but one of them was a nice user experience.
0: Yeah, I Um, think oftentimes people see that pyramid and then engineers uh, graft on top of it an idea of a tech stack, where the front end is at the top and the, you know, the servers at the bottom and you've got the, you know, everything in between. So they imagine when you see the fundamental part at the bottom of the pyramid, that that means you're building only the, the backend, you're building only the services. Uh, and in reality, it's, it's a little more, uh, getting it right is a little more in depth than that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So shifting gears a little bit, um, I want to move into this topic of um, transitioning to a startup. Uh, because you made a transition yourself after having been a, sort of absorbed into the Borg. That, yeah. that it is big company life, right? Uh, and you went to a startup. Uh, at, at what point did you decide, um, you know, like, hey, I, I think I kinda wanna start my own thing. It sounds like that was around this conversation you had that, that, that there was something specific that you wanted to go do.
0: Yeah, well, I think that was part of it, and and for us, really, there was this notion that we wanted to create a different kind of company, that we wanted to not just build something revolutionary that we thought we couldn't build within a big company, like explicitly thought the idea we had was so big that it could only be built by a startup, but that we also wanted to create a more humane company, a company that at its center works differently, that hires people differently, that works together as a company in a way that we hadn't seen happen in these big megacorp situations. And so for us, it was really, we can't build what we want at a big company, and we can't um, control the way a megacorp works in the way that like if we bring the right people together, we can all birth a company that has a different sort of moral and ethical compass uh, from the beginning. And so both of those things really appealed to us.
1: Yeah, I think you hit on something really important for all of uh, the folks that are within large companies, and especially leaders within large companies that have influence over the culture and, and the, the inner workings of that organization, which is that um, here you have a, an idea that could have been born from within Microsoft, but it felt like the path was not right to do so in that environment. And so the question I'll pose to uh, folks that we, we won't answer here, uh, we'll move on to other topics, is how do you create an environment that keeps these ideas in rather than having, I mean, look, all the incentives were there for you to start your own company uh, for all the reasons that you described and, and the really good reasons to go do that.
0: Well, I think a big disadvantage that the large companies have is that they already have a user base Of hundreds of millions or in some cases billions of users for some of these products and so keeping those users happy is uh, very hard you've got you know in the case of Microsoft Word you have 30 years of legacy code legacy documents legacy expectations features you can't ever get rid of and people's expectations of what it's for you know, when we used to work on Office, we would talk about designing Microsoft Office was like ordering pizza for a billion people. Like everyone has some topping that they want on it. And so you end up with, you know, this sort of, you know, monolithic app that has to do everything. And, and so we really knew that the kind of big idea that we were doing could only be done, truly incubated and grown quickly um, in a small environment. And I think sometimes one of the reasons people don't leave these big megacorps is they have this notion that the only way that you can get, um, you know, sort of the, the users or you can get the the influence on the industry is by building within one of these big companies. And what you find uh, when you end up on the outside in the sort of the real world of, of startups is that actually you can build so much faster and with so much more freedom that there's a reason that so much of the innovation that shows up in the software world comes from startups it's because they're free to build without the crushing expectations of building a product with 3000 people in a megacorp that's been building a certain way for decades and decades
1: yeah uh the pain is real so Um, I wanna shift the question a little bit around kind of what are these main considerations when you're thinking about making a switch uh, to a startup world. What if you're not going to be the founder of a startup? But thinking, you know what, like I've been at the big company for a while, I wanna try something different. I can speak to this a little bit personally, uh, which is that I was at a consulting firm uh, and I went there expressly for the purpose of getting to try lots of different things, fell in love with building software, um, and at some point sat down and said, is this one of the best places in the world to build software? And the answer was no, and startups seem to be on the bleeding edge of this kind of stuff. Maybe I'll go work at a startup. Um, What what advice would you give to someone who is thinking about making this switch, but they aren't starting their own thing?
0: Yeah. Okay, so first start with the mental model that... In your career, um, you should work at a big company, and you should work at a startup, and you should work at a medium-sized company. Like, a career is long, and ideally, the best career path for almost everyone is going to be to try all of those things. And so, sometimes we create this big notion, especially with big company people who have been there for a long time, of like, what would it mean to sort of leave the the womb and like go out into the real world. And that's like this big shape shift. And you should realize it's just like changing any other, you know, career. Like you can go do it for three years. And if you want, you can come back or you can try something else. Like it's not a high stakes, you know, winner takes all decision. That's gonna you know, can't ever be countermanded or brought back. Right. Um, I think a really important thing is to realize that a startup, while the founders, of course, are important in creating the company, in the early stages of a company, in the first, you know, couple hundred people that join, everyone's DNA gets deeply um, sort of entombed in the way the company works. You are the first person figuring out how this product thing should work, how this engineering thing should work how we hire people, how we get beverages, how we organize work, how like the first people that join a startup have so much responsibility and opportunity to have themselves end up inside uh, the way the company works. And they'll be able to have the gratification of seeing that played out over years and years and years. The first salesperson, the first sales leader, the first marketing person, the first person to lead product, the first, like all of those people um, are starting from scratch. And so not just will they have like the gratification of really building the company, like every single person who joins in the first, you know, three, four years of a startup is going to be able to see themselves reflected in the success of the company. But you also have incredible and unparalleled opportunity for career advancement and i don't just mean that in the sense of you know moving up the corporate ladder but in terms of like your fastest path to learn the most things to try new uh roles to take leadership opportunities to do things that you would never get to do you might wait you know eight years in a big company to you know become a lead developer and advance to level seven or, you know, whatever weird leveling system your corporation happens Mm -hmm. to use. Whereas in a startup, like you're only constrained by your desire to take on leadership opportunities. Startup is all about you saying like, hey, there's something broken. I think I have an idea of how to fix it. I'm going to go fix it. I'm going to go invent it. I'm going to go figure out how to make it work. And so it just, it puts your career in hyperdrive. Like by the time you're ready to move on to your next thing, you've, managed people, you've managed teams, you've led initiatives, you've, you know, you can point to a big part of the product and say, I invented this. Uh, you've sold stuff in a way that you have like complete control over like the process and, and how it works. And so it is life affirming and it is rocket fuel for your career. Yeah, It is like, you know, it's it's like you can compress 10 years of what you would have had to do in a big company down to two years in terms of like, you know, your your ability to uh, advance and lead. Um, and so, man, if you can do it, um, you should do it. Like, yeah. it is, it's an amazing thing. And you don't have to be a founder to take advantage of that. Like, everyone has that experience.
1: Yeah, the uh, phrase I've, I've heard that describes that is, um, you know, you go to a startup to learn and a big company to earn. Uh-huh. Which, which like the idea is that like typically and and you know we could talk about this in a bit like you make less at a startup mm-hmm. but, but you learn so much and for folks who like learning and being able to tackle brand new things that have not been tackled before and like hey we need to figure out x y or z i'll give an example um i was running product at a tech startup and uh I noticed there were some opportunities to improve conversion optimization and no one was thinking about that at all. Turns out there's an entire discipline called growth, which I sort of taught myself and then was asked to lead a growth organization. Because like, hey, you're doing growth work. You seem to have a handle on this. You now run growth, right? And um, yeah, we got some really phenomenal outcomes and that's incredibly fun and rewarding in a way that like, gosh, I mean, a separate topic that will be really interesting is how do you create those experiences within a large company? Because I think it is an achievable thing. But, yes, going to a startup is the rocket fuel. That is the place where you can try all of these different things. And, and like, look, the expert may not be in-house. So guess what? You're it.
0: That's right. And, you know, I, I really enjoyed my time you know, working at a big company. Like I felt like I had a big impact, I grew, like I'm definitely not gonna say there aren't ways that you can grow uh, within a big company because of course there's a lot that you can learn there and you have lots of opportunities. It's just the pace, especially for someone who really wants to not just specialize in one specific thing, but like really is, is excited about learning um, lots of new things. The not just ability to learn and freedom to learn, but ability to build without all of the BS. Like so much more of the, the, the hours of the day that you spend of work is content. It's not people carrying information from meeting to meeting or meetings to talk about, the meeting to talk about, presenting to the person to decide to do the thing. Like most of it is sitting down at your desk and actually building like startups need workers. And by that, I mean, people who love to do like, it's not a place where you can spend all of your time talking, of course, you collaborate, of course, you're thoughtful about the decisions you make. But in the end, there's no uh, job that is just pass that information off to someone else. Like you're building, you're writing, you're selling, you're growing, you're um, coming up with ideas, and then you're doing them. And so your example was great, which is like, You know, if you look around and you're like, hey, who's doing growth? Oh, I guess I should do it. Okay, I'm going to go do growth. And then you figure it out and you build it. And then that's another arrow that you have in the quiver of your career that makes you that much more valuable. um, And it gives you that many more kinds of opportunities for what you can do for the next 20 years of your career. Mm
1: -hmm. Well, let me, so I want to jump back a topic a, a little bit which is around in the vein of making a switch, but I want to go back now to, to co-founder, co-founder mindset. When you made your switch, did you have some amount of time where you were still working at Microsoft, but also you know working on this other thing, evolving this idea and getting it to a point where it was kind of stable, right? Like some of the common guidance is, you, know, you don't just quit your day job because you have an idea. Yeah. So there are certainly
0: uh, folks who incubate ideas you know, at, uh, while they're at large companies. And I certainly, I knew people that I worked with that even you know, had startups while they worked at Microsoft, sort of off to the side. Um, in the end, we believed that our idea was going to be one that was going to take capital, that we were going to raise money, uh, a seed round. And we knew that the only chance that we had of doing that no one was going to give us seed money while we were still working like a day job somewhere else. So we probably irresponsibly um, did quit our day jobs. Yeah. And it was a rough period. Like we watched our bootstrap bank accounts like dwindle into a dangerous place. We were, you know, shutting down services, you know, and, and scaling back our life in a major way to try to like, you know, scrape by to get to where we could, you know, we weren't, obviously making any money. Um, and that's scary, of course, like we both had kids like, yeah. um, you know, that's, that is, in itself can be really scary, but we figured out a period of time we thought we could make it work for. And we knew that if it didn't work out, if we couldn't raise the, the capital that we needed or the idea didn't pan out that another big company job would be there somewhere. Cause that's the thing. Like, Google's still gonna be there tomorrow, and so is Amazon, and so is Microsoft, and so is Facebook, like, if you try something, you say, hey, I can try to make it work for six months, ah, it didn't work, guess what? They're ready to hire you back again, and probably you're gonna get a bump up because of the experience you've had on the outside as a startup founder, um, and so there, there's, there's this idea sometimes that people have a difficult time leaving because they're worried about what they're leaving, what they're, what's, what's being left behind, this idea that like you can't go back. And the truth is you can go back. It's not a one time and done decision. You have the safety blanket of, um, so many companies that are desperate to hire people, um, that, you know, will hire you back and you can get back on the, on the earning train as you sort of touched the third rail of compensation uh, a few minutes ago. Yeah. Um, but for us, yeah, we, we, uh, We had the idea and we went for it.
1: Yeah. So um, there's a bunch of things we could talk about. Um, What I want to move into is around mindset. Okay. Um, And we've sort of hinted at this, which is that I think the mindset changes pretty significantly when you're at a startup versus when you're at a large company. Right, And and one thing I think you touched on, and I'd love to hear you elaborate on, is um, perhaps uh, what you think those biggest changes to mindset are, and things that I heard is around learning, not to say you can't have a learning mindset within a big company, mm-hmm. also sense of urgency and speed with which we react to things. Um, what, what are some of the other things that you think are pretty significant mindset changes that will sort of help our viewers as they're making a potential transition?
0: Yeah. So I will start by saying that I don't believe you can fully understand it until you're doing it. I I will offer, of course, some things. But, like, I thought I had it in my Mm -hmm. mind from talking to people who had done it, like what it was going to be like. And it is so different and exhilarating, like Mm -hmm. out in the oxygen of the real world and out of the, you know, what is really a cocoon, like an insular – environment in a big company where everything revolves around the big company. Um, That said, I think there are a couple of things. You touched on a few of them. Some others that come to mind, uh, being willing to uh, and understanding that you're going to have failure is really important. In a big company, failure is often punished uh, by a bad performance review, not getting that promotion to the next corporate ladder level that you're heading towards. Whole teams try things that are innovative that don't work, and so they punish all the people associated with them, because um, that's how you know big company cultures work. In a startup, you've quickly realized that you're gonna fail a lot. You're trying things that have never been tried before, and every failure is an opportunity to learn something and then fix it and do it better. And having that mindset where you don't just like, you're not afraid of failure, but in fact, you embrace that it happens and that when it does happen, that it's an opportunity for you. Um, that is critical in a startup because if you let yourself be flattened every time something doesn't work or you assume there's going to be retribution or you're going to get in trouble, um, that's not the case in a healthy startup. In a healthy startup, it's like, okay, what did we learn? What do we need to fix? Okay, let's go try the next thing. Like, and, you, and you go do that quickly. But I think that's one really important mindset. Change.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, the, the yeah. expression, uh, you know, fail fast is very popular, but I think, especially in a startup context, what we really mean is learn fast. Mm-hmm. And along the way, you might fail. And it's not really a, I'm doing air quotes, a failure, right? If you've learned something, especially if directionally, you can get closer to what might actually work based on what you've learned.
0: Yeah. I mean, let me be really clear. Failing sucks. It's not fun. It's not like, hey, guys, we did it. We failed. And it was really fast.
1: Yeah, we're doing it right. Failing fast.
0: Succeeding is way better. It's way more fun. It's awesome when you succeed. Like, it's exciting. But sometimes it's not going to go the way that you want it to go. And so how quickly can you learn from that and make people feel okay with that? I think, you know, what goes along with that is, you know, to build a great startup environment, there's going to be people joining all the time. And so creating a, a situation in which it's okay for people to ask questions they don't know the answer to, and for people to realize that you know, like the, the, the trite statement, there are no dumb questions, which you know, we've all heard a million times, it really has to be true. In a startup. You have to be willing to, like, even you know, me as the CTO, I'm constantly asking, like, how does this thing work in our code base? What does this file do? Does anyone know how this thing works? Like, I'm not the the oracle of all information. Like, yeah, I was here from the first line of code we wrote and you know wrote that first line of code in many cases, but we're a you know, we're a we're a, a big code base now. We have so being able to be comfortable setting the, the, the standard of saying, if you don't know something, you're going to ask and that you create a culture of saying, you're not going to judge someone because they ask the question, you're going to help them, I think is really important that, that help mindset, the idea that you're not competing with your coworkers for a promotion, you're instead building something with them in a way that's deeply collaborative um, is incredibly important if a startup is going to be successful. If already at 100 people, the startup's competing with itself, man, you're in, bad, you're in a bad state. And so yep. getting that comp- competition gene from big company world out of your mindset uh, is really, really important.
1: So you're hitting on an interesting topic, which is culture. And this in and of itself could be the topic of many webcasts. Um, but I want to dig into something related to culture, which is, you know, okay, let's say you've never worked at a startup before. Or maybe you're working at a startup now. What are some of the warning signs, things that if you saw this, if you're interviewing with a startup or you're working at a startup, that would cause you to be really concerned? And you mentioned competition is one of these factors. Um, What are some others?
0: Yeah, so I think the first uh, really important warning sign would be if the answers that you're getting uh, seem incredibly vague about what people are working on about what their product does, about what their vision is, about what the culture is like, great places to work are going to have clear answers that, um, that, you know, they may not be able to tell you everything that they're working on. There may be some things that they can't tell you until you work there, but are going to have really, really, um, I think, clear answers about what they're working on. They're going to have a clear statement of Uh, the role that the founders play in the company, because that's really, really important. Um, One of the questions I uh, counsel people to ask uh, in an interview at a startup is, tell me about a time the founders disagreed. Uh, And that's really important, because there's always gonna be times when there's disagreements. And so getting at asking for an example of a time when the founders have disagreed can tell you a lot about, well, how is disagreement held? How do people deal with when there are conflicts of ideas? How forthcoming is the person you're talking to? How willing are they to tell you how things actually work um, at the company? Uh, and so I think so often people have expressed this notion of like they go into their interview and something doesn't quite feel right. People sign kind with of seem off. They're not being forthcoming. They paint this like overly rosy picture. Um, and then it turns out that they joined that place and it is, you know, weird and it's, you know, not what they were promised. It wasn't, you know, what was, what was there. And so um, that's one of the questions that I ask people to ask. Another one that I think is really important is asking people um, how their work environment has changed in the last year, because any startup that is being, uh, that is on a successful path is going to have immense changes within a year's time. Mm
1: -hmm. Everything's
0: growing, things are changing, everyone's learning, you're figuring out new things. And so if the question you get is like, I don't know, it's, you know, the answer you get is, I don't know, it's pretty much been the same. Yeah, we just write some code and you know, it's pretty cool. Um, that probably shows that you're not, uh, joining a place that has that vibrant kind of Fast-moving growth mindset place that you're looking to work. Um, if you know, may, worst case, it may mean the startup is you know on its way out. Yeah. Um, but it, at the very least, means that you know the the employees aren't as engaged as you might want.
1: Um, engagement is actually also an interesting idea. My experience, and and let me know if this resonates for you as well, was that. When I shifted from a big company environment to a startup environment, I mean, the engagement level was through the roof uh, at the startup. Is that is that something that, that you also have experienced?
0: I think in the best startups it is, right? <laughs> I mean, like <laughs> okay. the first thing you have to realize is that go all on. startups are not created equal, just like all big companies are not created equal. So there are, you know, amazing places you can go work that are startups, and there are holes in the earth that are terrible, um, that are toxic, that are bad. And so definitely, like, just being at a startup isn't a panacea. You have to choose the right one. You have to ask the right questions. You have to um, look for the signs that it's successful. But if you find the right one, one of the signs is that you should see the engagement, even in the interview process, be really high. Like, of course, not every person you talk to is going to be extroverted and eloquent, but you're looking for, can they tell you why the place is special? Mm. Like, um, one of the things at Textio that we have on every job post on our site, is that we look for people who have a point of view and are low ego. And that is, from the very beginning, it's the very first line that we wrote of our very first job listing, and it's been there ever since. And it's possible, in interviewing here, you will hear every single employee you interview with talk about point of view and low ego and why that's important and why that has helped us shape the culture that we have that engagement of of not just like hey i can tell you like the company you know value or i can i can you know cite the bottom line but it, but that it's coming deeply from their heart that they're engaged they feel like they've built it they can explain to you why they're on this special journey yeah that you know, that you get s- so many limited opportunities to be part of, um, to be in a, you know, a startup that is really creating something special with a special group of people um, is a rare thing. And so, yeah, if if people aren't engaged, if they're just doing their job, um, I would view that as a warning sign.
1: Yeah. Yes. Well, I think you hit on something that is worth mentioning, which is ego. Uh, Very few people talk about ego, right? Lots of people talk about tech risk. Can we build it? And product risk, you know, is there a market for this thing? Will will people buy it? Can we figure out what the right thing is? But very few people are talking about ego risk. This idea that I have a belief and I know the way and I'm right in making these decisions based on opinions rather than data. Yeah. And that is like kryptonite for a startup.
0: Yeah, in the end it doesn't matter who comes up with the idea. It only matters that you find the best idea. Like one of the ways we talk about that here at Textio is, I want you to be able to come into a discussion and say, hey, I have a really great idea, I think, for how we might do this. I think we could do A, B, C. That's the point of view part, which is really important because you don't want people who can't bring a point of view. But you also want people to be able to come to that discussion and say, Elliot, that thing that you said, that's really smart. I hadn't thought about that. I'm gonna go build on top of that. Let me go build on your idea. Like, I think you have, you're onto something here. Let's build on top of your idea. And so the best people find um, the right idea and are willing to let go, uh, I can think of an example that we had in about our second year of the company where we had been working on a new component, basically a new editing component for Textio, the thing that you type in, the most fundamental thing that we had, we've been working on it for four months with a with a few engineers, a, a new rewrite of this component, and we hired a developer who came in, and uh, on day one he sat down and we were like telling him how it works and this cool new thing we had, you know, uh, in the works, and he was like. Have you guys thought about doing it this way, using this other component? And um, and we said no, we haven't heard of that at all. Um, can you tell us more about it? And of course, you know that's part of the like not having shame about saying like, yeah, I guess we should have heard about this thing, but we haven't. Can you tell us more about it? In the end, we said, well, why don't you go off and spend three days and just see what you can get built? And he came back in three days and said, here's what I've learned about how well this would work for Textio. And the whole team of engineers, despite having four months of sunk cost into this code that they had written, said, actually, I think new guy's idea is right. Let's build <laughs> on top of this thing. And we did it. No, no one looked back. Every power, product person in the company said, yeah, let's do it. This is a better idea. Free it's,
1: environment. Whoo.
0: And so that, that's what it's about. And no one was worried that there was going to be ramifications from above or a performance review feedback. Like the ego is not there. It's like from where we are now, what's the best path to getting the best thing built um, as quickly as possible. And that was a route that we hadn't considered. And so that like, to me, like that, that's, that's the example of of how that works when you take ego out of the, uh, out of the picture. Really powerful.
1: Well, we have covered a ton of ground today, starting with, big company life and what you might be thinking about if you're going to go start your own company or make your way to a startup. We've talked about MVPs, uh, and we've talked a lot about culture and mindset and health and warning signs for a startup environment. Is there anything else that you wanted to add before we wrap up today?
0: Yeah, I think it's a great conversation. The last thing that I might mention, just because you mentioned it, um, and it is the third rail, the, third uh, and the number one reason Danger. the number one reason that people uh, decide not to leave big companies for startups is compensation. Mm-hmm. this idea that um, they are concerned that they're you know not going to make as much and the truth is um, you can make a great living at a startup and of course you know it widely varies by the startup and you should look in that but People are compensated very fairly. And of course, a bigger part of your compensation at a startup is equity, ownership that you have in the company that you share in its success, which is different than the cash that you get at a big company yearly because you don't have very much ownership in that company. I think the really important thing there is to think about why the big companies have to overpay you. Like, Why is it that they have to pay more cash than a startup does? That doesn't make sense. Um, well, of course it does, because they have to overpay you to want to work there. That's what they have to do, otherwise, no one would choose to go there um, and there's this really insidious thing called golden handcuffs,
1: mm. which
0: many people may have heard of before, which is this idea that like they get you you know some money that vests over four years and like they they constantly make it so anytime you leave you're going to be leaving cash on the table and I think it's really important to think about. Why they do that? Like you don't need to be handcuffed to something that you love. So why are they handcuffing you? Like think about this, the metaphor. It's so gross. Like they're golden handcuffs, they're 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 shackling your career to something that you don't that isn't best for you, uh, with money. And of course money is important and you know, people have different uh things that they need in their life, but realize that you can make a great living, you can make um, you know, a great compensation package with great health benefits and other kinds of benefits, equity in the company, don't be afraid of it from that point of view, ask um, and, and see whether you can make it work because so often it turns out people are so scared of it and then they actually do it and they're like, oh, this actually works pretty well, I should have done this a long time ago. Um, and so I would really encourage people to be open-minded Look into it. See if you can make it work. Um, it's not as big a difference as you think, and it could be actually financially the best decision that uh, you ever made. Um, so there you have the last, it. Last thing we're talking about. Yeah.
1: Phenomenal conversation and advice with Jensen Harris from Textio. If people want to learn more about you and your company, uh, where can they find you and where can they find more about your company?
0: Yeah. So best places to find me on Twitter at Jensen Harris, all one word, uh, J-E-N-S-E-N, Harris, and uh, Textio.com. If you want to learn more about augmented writing, see the video of how it works and uh, uh, try it out. Actually, you can be using it within uh, 15 seconds from the time Uh you're there. No credit card or anything. Just try it out,
1: see how it works. Very nice. Yes, I have been to your website and the video is incredibly helpful. Um, Viewers, thank you so much for your time and attention. My name is Elliot Sussel. If you have any questions about today's session, send me a message, E-L-L-I-O-T at leanstartup.co. I'd be happy to reply to it, or if it's for Jensen, I can forward it to him. We really enjoyed having you today, uh, Jensen, and viewers, we look forward to chatting with you again soon. Take care, everybody.